0: there's a relationship between our oppression and our experience of the erotic, our experience of power. And that because we get denied the erotic, that we don't think that we can practice it, that we get told that it's not allowed to us or we look down on it, um, that we never understand what our full embodied erotic yes even feels like within ourselves. And that once we have felt that full embodied erotic yes flow through us, then it becomes possible to settle for basically the conditions of oppression, which are self-negation, depression, despair, um, denial of your own destiny. And I love that, that I'm like, what is the fastest way to get people interested in and committed to their own liberation? And I have tried lots of different organizing paths, but I have not found anything quite like what happens when people really awaken to the fact that there's a yes within them, that -hmm. is not about being in service to any of these existing constructs and powers that be, that only wanna use us for our production.
1: Hey loved ones, welcome to Naked Conversations, a space for you and I to meditate, strategize and dream of the tools needed to transform into radical selves. I'm your host, Martisa Williams, free being, radical wayshore, and liberation doula. My purpose is to support the collective on our journey to deeper joy, sweeter justice, and fulfilling presence. So are you ready to step into your most liberated life yet? Let's get to it. Friends, So I'm collaborating with my longtime friend Liz Wolsey this October. So I've asked
2: her to come on so we can talk to you about
1: what we've got coming
2: up. So I'm excited for this offering because it's a chance to work together and experiment for 30 days. You and I talk about stories like all the time. But I think an illustration
1: for folks may be helpful.
2: Yeah, so here's my example from a couple weeks ago. A dear friend and I were talking about organizing, and in the middle, I started to feel like they were quizzing me, like there was a right or a wrong answer, and a past Liz would have gotten increasingly annoyed and probably lashed out, but I was able to say, it feels like I'm being quizzed, which let my friends say, oh yeah, that's not what I meant and we got to talk about it. The whole thing was maybe done in two minutes and we were able to move forward with a better understanding.
1: These kind of misunderstandings happen all the time, at home, in work, in organizing, and too often, instead of stopping and checking in, we just let it go. Then we're in our own story about what's happening. It may be real life or it may not.
2: Right. And the only way to know is to check in with another person. But we don't check in sometimes because we're afraid and sometimes because we just don't know how. So here comes Connect and Communicate. So we're
1: inviting you to a 30-day nervous system experiment where you get to learn through
2: experience and practice to be more honest and vulnerable in the ways you communicate. So I've done 30-day programs that left me drained. Our goal with this one is to give you ways to engage that are mindful of your capacity. And we call this an experiment, so it's easier to let go of what you already know and imagine what could be possible. So we're gonna have some fun.
1: We're gonna support one another and be mindful of our own capacity. So signups close on September 19th and so that we can have time to pair you meaningfully with someone to be in practice with if you choose. You can visit the link in the show notes and join us. Hello, 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 my friends. (sighs) Happy Thursday. I'm so excited to share with you today's episode. But before I do, I actually wanted to share a little experience that I was having around this episode um and that was I actually Adrian Marie Brown and I had this conversation about a year ago and um ever since for whatever reason I had it in my head that this was a shitty episode that I didn't do well that it wasn't like I wasted this opportunity There was this whole narrative in my brain around that and so I have been feeling anxious about sharing it, excited because I got to have this amazing conversation with one of the peoples that have um whose work has been really impactful for me, but also feeling I don't know, anxious around uh sharing it because I thought I bombed it. And so as I was editing this week's episode um I was listening to it back, and I was like, oh my gosh, this was a really good conversation. Um, and there was a lot of just juiciness and simpleness and just, it was lovely. And it wasn't at all what I had made up the story in my head that it sh- it was. And for me, that was just a really good uh, example of how we can run off and live our whole life in our head telling ourselves all of these stories about what's real. And if we never check them with the outside source, we will forever live in whatever story that's going on internally. And so I'm so grateful that I finally you know, edited the episode and I'm sharing it with you because then I can reimagine the past in a way that feels more satisfying and more true. And this is exactly why my friend Liz Wiltsey of Future Proof Skills Lab and I created Connect and Communicate, our 30-day nervous system experiment. It is so that we can be in practice of checking our nervous system stories. Our nervous systems are these incredible, incredible tools, these incredible survival mechanisms. But the thing is, is like when we are looking to live a liberated and joyful life, our nervous system is not always trying to create that life for us. It is really just trying to create safety for us. And those two things aren't always in alignment. And so that's why we created this program is so that we can be in practice with one another about what our stories are and practice what it looks like being in communication about, hey, this is the story that I'm making up in my head. Is this landing true for you and getting in that habit so that we can just squeeze more joy out of our lives rather than sitting in our own La la land. That's not always super useful. So, I wanted to share that. And if you're interested in joining us for the experiment, all the information is in the show notes Um, and registration actually in September 19th. So, if you're hearing this um, the week that this is out, that's about a little over two weeks away. Um, And there's a lot of payment options um, available so that it can be as accessible as possible. So, check it out and uh, let us know if you have questions and one last thing before we get into the episode i am offering in a week from today september 9th 2021 i am offering a full day of 30 minutes fit for 50 dollar one-on-one calls so this these are the one thing calls which is an opportunity for you to just tap in with me for 30 minutes about one thing that we can strategize on how to shift you deeper into alignment with your most radical self and to have the joy and pleasure and satisfaction that you deserve out of your life. And so I wanted to just kind of offer this like moment to check in to be like, how can I do one thing that's gonna get me a little closer to the liberation that my soul has really been longing for? And that's what these calls are about. That's what this opportunity for this call is about. So um September 9th, all day you can hop on the calendar. There's a link in the show notes and it's 30 minutes for just $50. So if you're interested in that go ahead and check out the link in the show notes. Okay. Let's get in today's episode. I am like still buzzing and through the moon to have had this conversation with Adrian Marie Brown. She is one of the people whose work I want to say shifted things for me, but I actually don't want to use the word shift it validated so much for me. She's one of the people who, when I read her work, I was like, oh my God, here are the words that I didn't have for this thing that has been in my head, this feeling, this inner knowing, this ancestral knowing that I had. And um, I am just so grateful for the scholars and the humans who can validate an inner knowing when I don't have language for it and put language for something that I don't have language for. And she's just one of those people that have done that and whose work has done that for me in really, really impactful ways. So having this conversation with her was such a treat. Adrian Marie Brown is the author of Holding Change, We Will Not Cancel Us, Pleasure Activism, Emergent Strategy, and the co-editor of Octavia's Brood. She is the co-host of the podcast How to Survive the End of the World and the podcast Octavia's Parables, and she's rooted in Durham, North Carolina. In the episode, we start off by talking about actually how not to fangirl, uh, which was a fun conversation. And then we get into the shaping of Adrian and our shared love for Detroit. Uh, We talk about pleasure activism and the alchemy of satisfaction. We talk about holding conflict as a skill for the movement and generative conflict and getting in right relationship with change. Um, This episode is everything (laughs) for me at least it was to be able to have this conversation with her it was everything so I'm gonna shut up and I will see you on the other side of the episode hello hello thank you for joining us
0: hi thank you for having me
1: yeah so all week I've been trying to muster up cool to talk to you. <laughs> and I was telling I was telling my partner, I was like, you know, I'm gonna really try hard not to fangirl. Um, there's very few people um, that are living that I, whose work has impacted me so deeply as your work.
0: Thank you, thanks and for so being impactable.
1: Yeah, of course. How do you not
0: fangirl? What's your, what's your like, what have your practice has been for trying to not do it?
1: I think, because I I worry about fangirling because I I struggle with the, like, um, the pedestal that it puts
0: people on. Totally.
1: And it doesn't allow for humans to be human. If I'm, like, putting you up here and, like, you're all this glory, then I don't actually get to have a real connection. A
0: conversation. No, I mean, I had... um, I got to do a panel with Angela Davis earlier this week and I wasn't, it was the same thing, totally same thing. Right. I was like, okay, Angela Davis is a human being. She like, you know, does things. She goes for walks. She does yoga. Like she has to eat and chew and probably swallow and, you know, <laughs> like, but it was like the same thing. i just trying to be like, how do I um, protect her humanity, her right to have her humanity. And, I think it's totally interesting it's like one thing to know like pedestals don't make sense and everybody is a human and all of that and then another thing to like be in practice with people who you know like for me angela davis like i don't i can't even conceive of the word revolutionary without her coming to mind right like she's the person who the measure against which all things revolutionary for me have always has that that's the measure that's the standard and um and I think she's earned her like she's earned the right for my jaw to drop she's earned the right for like for me to be like on my p's and q's but then she was so cool and gracious in the conversation and so it felt like such a um yeah it was like such a good teaching for me that I was like oh I can look up to her um for what she's done and I can even feel all the titillation of be, getting to be in contact with her and be like, oh, you, you can see that I exist. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm like, the pedestal is weird to navigate.
1: It is. You know? It is. And I want to get into my first question, but um, how do you, as a person, it's interesting because I think Angela Davis, obviously, like, she's everything she's, like, angela
0: she's angela davis <laughs> exactly <you know? laughs> she's iconic
1: but it's interesting because i look at the activists the organizers the writers in like your group of folk and i'm like you all will be our and the younger my kids angela davis you know like our grandkids uh-huh. angela Davis.
0: yeah and well you know it's interesting right because one of the things that I have definitely been aware of is I'm like, you know, Angela Davis was in, is Angela Davis because of the time that she exi- existed in, right? And I think of myself as someone who's more heading on like a Gloria Anzal path, maybe, right? Like, I'm like, I want to be a great writer. Mm-hmm. And, and Angela Davis is a great writer on top of having been a badass, like, activist and on top of becoming this iconic figure, like I can't imagine defending myself in court. I can't imagine (laughs) right, being in exile underground for years. It doesn't mean it's not gonna happen, especially depending on what happens with this um, government attempting a coup right now. And I might have to like do some different level of direct action, but I can't quite um, envision that at this point, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm a 42 year old writer and moving concepts in the world alongside of many other people moving concepts in the world. And one of the things that she said the other night that blew my mind was, you know, my ideas are collective ideas, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that really, that really aligns with my deepest belief, which is like, there's a river of these ideas that is trying to move towards life all the time, and that I get to be in that river, and so it gets to flow through me. As stuff has flowed through her, stuff is flowing through you. Yeah. Um, and you know sometimes i think oh it'll be it's it you know i've started to have that awareness i'm like oh some people will know my name after i die or whatever but there's a part of me that's also like more titillated by the idea that some of the ideas that are moving through me right now will go further than my name will go Mm. right Mm -hmm. That like i'll get to be part of the lineage of the idea of collectivity or abolition um or love and pleasure that those things being central to society, I'll get to be a part of that. That is very exciting to me.
1: I love that. Oh, I love that. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. (laughs) Okay, all right,
0: now that we've begun, Right.
1: (laughs) So my first question I ask all of my guests is what made you you?
0: So what made me me? This is an outstanding question. I love it (laughs) because you can go so many places with it. I am the child of a black Southern man and a white Southern woman. And I think that's one of the first things that made me me is that I come from a family that is, is based in love, still in love and then Southern. And I think Southern shaping is a very particular kind of shaping. Like we're not too far from the realities of the nation. Like, I feel like in other parts of the country, you can kind of live in some um, projection of yourself, you know, the North, right? It was like, like, we didn't have slaves or whatever. Like, it's not true. But in the South, I feel like people sort of sit with the truth all the time. (laughs) They're just like, I'm racist or whatever that truth may be. So that's part of the shaping that I come from. And then uh, my father was in the military for the first 30 years of my life. So it meant that I was moving every two years or so, moving um, from one place to another. I grew up constantly in transit. And I think that that has really shaped me to be someone who thinks a lot about being in right relationship with change, thinks a lot about what does it mean to be adaptive, thinks a lot about how, how do you land and be yourself and quickly build community with others and I've also gotten to travel, you know, by the time I was 18, I'd lived half of my life outside of the US uh-huh. in Germany and uh, and traveled a ton. So that shapes you because the US experiment for how to human is not the only one that I was exposed to. And growing up in Germany, you're living in the legacy of a country hitting its rock bottom um, and you get to see like, and life goes on and, uh-huh. you know, I think that right now the US is in that place. Um, I'm not sure if we fully hit the bottom yet. I keep hoping we've hit the bottom and then we keep being (laughs) like, no, we're gonna try to reelect him. I'm like, okay, (laughs) let's just keep swimming down then. Um, But, you know, I do have a sense that life goes on and that even when it seems like the most dire time, humanity as an experiment continues. So that's made me me. Reading science fiction definitely has made me, me. Um, and I've been a writer. You know, my mom says before I could even write, I was telling stories, writing. Um, so I can't really imagine a day without writing or, or my life without writing. Um, it feels so fundamental and it feels like the comp, the thread that has like every other job that I've done in my life. I've been writing alongside of her as that. And now I'm finally in a place where that's the primary thing right. um, that I'm doing. So um, I'm a Virgo. Mm, I didn't know that. Oh yes, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's very important to me. Um, and not, not in a like, it just feels like a set of uh, distinct ways of showing up in the world and that I embrace, right? That I'm like, oh, I am a Virgo like Beyonce. That that's someone who I can look up to <laughs> for like order and production and like getting things getting things into the world. So, um, what else? I live in Detroit on purpose. Mm. Um, I chose to live here. I love it here. I love. Um, part of what drew me here is the blackness of the city. And growing up, I was in places where we were never the majority population. And I know what it feels like to be like one of a few and, and how isolating that can feel. And I just love like every time I get off a plane or take a drive or anything. I just love being in a city where it's just like the majority of the people here are black and we are all human and we're a mess and we're not like necessarily better at governing ourselves or anything, but we are black. And it means that everyone you see doing anything, you know, the people biking, the people gardening, all the things that people are like, that's white shit. I'm like, not in Detroit, Yeah. (laughs) not in Detroit In Detroit, it's all black. And there's something really powerful to me about that experience of, of getting to see what we shape.
1: I'm so grateful that you still have that perspective of Detroit because I've been away for going on seven years now. Uh-huh. And when I left, I, I grew up in on the east side of Detroit, okay, like between seven mile and eight mile on mound off of mound. yeah, and like my neighborhood obviously all Black. When yeah. I went downtown, when I was still living there, downtown was still mostly Black.
0: Yeah, that's changed. <laughs> but now
1: it's, like, not the case at all. Um, yeah. And I wonder, like, what is it like? Um, Because now my mom lives in Ypsilanti. So uh-huh. anytime I come home, I'm, like, not. You're, like, it. in Ipsy. Yeah. So
0: <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, I will say I moved here um just over 10 years ago and is that true almost 11 now um and i live in the cast corridor so it's i definitely have seen the gentrification from when i moved here till now and and i think because i come from a relative relativity outside of the city right for me I'm still in one of the blackest places I've ever been, even with that gentrification. So it's like, I see that gentrification. Yeah. Um, And, you know, most most of the time for the past couple of years has been like, I'm traveling all the time. And so I'm going to other places that are less black and then returning here. So there's this constant relativity, right? That I'm like, oh, like this is still, you know and what you pay attention to grows. My world here is a very black world um, and not just of Black people, but of, of non-Black people who are still centering Blackness, Black stories, Black liberation struggles in whatever work they're doing. So that also feels important. It's like, what is the orientation of the people here? Um, but I never deny gentrification, and I never quite know what to do with it, because I know that God has changed, and I know that gentrification is one of the ways that cities change, and I know that it's as long as capitalism persists, gentrification will persist. Um, so I focus on trying to undermine capitalism um, with the hope that it will, one of the effects of that will be that we start to really understand a sovereignty that cannot be taken from us.
1: Mm, yeah, I love that. Um, I wanna pivot a little bit into, I wanna go over like a 101 of pleasure activism, because that was the first book of yours that I read. Um, and then it was that who made me go and read the rest of your stuff. How did Um, you come
0: across pleasure activism?
1: I, it had been in, in my, in the ether around me for many years before I ever touched it. Um, or what it felt like
0: was many years. I was like, it, it only came out last year, so I'm like, great. it only came out last year? <laughs> it
1: felt like it's been like years since it's been in the world.
0: Well, you know, I was speaking about pleasure activism before I published it, but it came out, let's see, this year I did the sabbatical. So it came out March of last year really? um, as, a, as a like physical book in hand, right? I would have told you it was and like five years ago. I love ago. this, I love this because Exactly. So many people that I talk to about it are like, yes. I mean, I've been, and I, I I think it's a function of time, but I also think it's a function of pleasure time because I Mm -hmm. think pleasure time has its own knowing. It has its own rhythm. And I think time does soften and open up when you start to really uh, center your own satisfaction and joy and contentment inside of it. It changes how time feels, but I always get so interested. I'm like, Hmm. So, a 101 of pleasure activism. Yeah. Um, uh, I think there's kind of two parts of it. Um, well, before I even get into the 101 of it, I'll say it's Audrey Lorde's Audre work that is the foundational text of what I then am building off of. So, her work is called The Uses of the Eroticus Power. I mean, she had so much work, but that particular essay It's like an eight page essay and she published it in August of 1978. Um, I was born in September of 1978. So I'm like the significance to me that this idea has been out in the world for the entirety of my life, but I didn't really come to understand and claim my own pleasure um, until much more recently. It's always wild to me, that I'm like, ah, oh, we have to really find and uplift these ideas, which may not be brand new, but are so important and have not yet proliferated. So a big part of why there's a book of pleasure activism is trying to bring back into the conversation these ideas. And one of the ideas is there's a relationship between our oppression and our experience of the erotic, our experience of power. And that because we get denied the erotic, that we don't think that we can practice it, that we get told that it's not allowed to us or we look down on it. that we never understand what our full embodied erotic yes even feels like within ourselves. And that once we have felt that full embodied erotic yes flow through us, then it becomes possible to settle for basically the conditions of oppression, which are self-negation, depression, despair, um, denial of your own destiny. And I love that that I'm like, what is the fastest way to get people interested in and committed to their own liberation? And I have tried lots of different organizing paths but I have not found anything quite like what happens when people really awaken to the fact that there's a yes within them that -hmm. is not about being in service to any of these existing constructs and powers that be that only wanna use us for our production. So the first part of it is boom, right? Let's liberate ourselves from within. The second part of it is we're all having sex and doing drugs and, and like finding pleasures. And because a lot of that um, gets, we don't talk about it. The culture is very like, keep it secret, keep it separate. Like that is some kind of, it's like shameful to feel desired, shameful to have an amazing orgasm. It's shameful to get high, even though everyone's doing it. That, that, that leaves us in an, in an awkward position, I think where a lot of harm and abuse can happen and a lot of harmful and abusive patterns can unfold without being checked. So, an example of that is one of the things I talk about in the book is the kind of fantastical world that we engage in and the pornographic world, and how so much pornography at this point is um, abuse, rape, incest, and other things that are transgressions to our sexual health and safety and well being. So I'm like, what's that about, right? Why are those the things, the top searches, the top places we wanna to go to, the things that um, allow us to unleash desire and pleasure? And I don't ask with the intention of shaming, but with the intention of what would it look like to actually set our desires for ourselves? What would it look and feel like to, what would, what would you want to be turned on by, mm. right? And, um, I started having this conversation. I have a really amazing friend of mine who um, told me years ago that she was like, yes, I did this practice where for a week, I just tried to fantasize about myself. And she was a, a thick brown skinned woman. And, and she was like, and I got to the point where when I had an orgasm, I screamed out my own name. Ah. I was like, what? You know, it, it like blew my mind because it made me then interrogate. I had been going on and looking at pornography of skinny white bodies and then feeling when I look in the mirror, like how could I ever be desirable as a fat black body? Mm-hmm. I have been looking at heterosexual sex, even though I am a queer woman who wants to have sex with aliens and trans people and, you know, same sex people. So I was like, well, I'm not even desiring myself. Mm-hmm. And then I'm finding it very hard to believe other people's desire in me because I haven't been cultivating um, the reality of my own desirability. And So I think about all of that as the second part, right? Is how do we start to be intentional about desiring ourselves, about desiring the people that we actually are attracted to, about desiring dynamics that are, you know, maybe naughty, maybe shadowy, but not um, actively causing harm to another as the point of desire. So, yeah, all of that is in there. And then in the definitions of pleasure activism, one of the things I talk about is pleasure as, because often when I say pleasure activism, the first thing I can see happen for people is they're like a sex dungeon. And I'm like, no, (laughs) like not, or like, you know, just bunny bunny sex or so, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not, um, it's not about overindulgence. It really is about satisfaction. And that satisfaction might be sexual. It might come from drug use. It might come from something else, but actually, a lot of it is finding the contentment available inside of your own life. And Audrey talks about that. I might find that contentment from writing a poem. I might find that contentment from cooking a good meal. I might find it, um, you know, the other day, my, my sweetheart and I were sitting, we were off of social media and we put on some jazz music and we were just like laying on the couch, reading next to each other and it was, raining outside and the lights were low and it was just like I feel so satisfied by this moment and I had fantasized about this moment I had fantasized about being in the kind of love where it was like we felt so at ease with each other that we could just rest and read and like you know there was something about it it was just like this is such a satisfying day and uh each time you feel that kind of satisfaction, it does rearrange you, I think, at a cellular level. Mm -hmm. You realize you shouldn't have to always be living, reaching, 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 reaching for something that you don't have. But how do you settle in and be like, yes, this is what I wanted. And this is what I want.
1: It's such a Buddhist practice. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) That's the secret. (laughs)
1: Right, right. It is like... Oh, I have so many thoughts and I've got to narrow it down to one um, oh. in this moment. But like-
0: <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> right. I never, I never can so.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's the satisfaction piece for me. It's yeah. the like, how deeply, I think that's almost one of the most anti-capitalist things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, It's the is. practice of satisfaction.
0: It absolutely is. Capitalism- only works if we are unsatisfied and constantly needing to buy, attain, reach for, change ourselves, do, you know, do something to change, change, change. We're never satisfied. And to love someone new, to pursue something more attractive, to gain more money, all of it, to practice being satisfied, it starts to unhook you from the system of, of capitalism. And you know you're not fully outside of it because you still i still live here right but i feel like that that deep ah uh.
1: yeah your work makes me nerd out in neuroscience so i like i like try to like i'm not a scholar in this in any way i just enjoy understanding how our brains work yeah and some people I, would
0: say that is a scholar <laughs> <no>. <laughs> just cuz you're not in the academic realm doing that scholarship
1: right right. so one of the things is like understanding like our subconscious mind and also trauma and like the polyvagal theory yes um but just on the simple fact of like I wonder let me back it up reading your work made me question not question but made me evaluate where I see and feel satisfaction in my own life like what are those great And part of that evaluation was realizing how little satisfaction I experience. Hmm. But it also made me think about the tiniest moments where I experienced satisfaction. That's right. Like it was the one thing that that like stuck out for me so much was I took my first herbalis- herbalism course this summer. Yay. And I was making tea and I was enjoying just concocting things and putting things together. And the feeling of putting my herbs together, running the water over it, watching the steam, smelling the herbs, you know, yes. like that entire experience, I was like, oh, this is what I desire. Like yes. this moment of like, I don't want any more and no less. Like this is the perfect amount.
0: Yes. And it's that, you know, exactly what you just described It's the sensuality of being present to being alive. And I'm like, being alive is itself such an incredible thing. And I think in this period, I keep talking about how it's like, we're all in a PhD program for grief because Mm. so much death is happening right now. And one of the things I think death and mortality show us is just how romantic and poetic life is, how sensual it is. And, uh, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, I was traveling and I was like, where am I going to go next? Do I just go home now? Like, and I was like, I want to hug my parents. And it was so intense. And I knew that that meant like, I would have to travel to them and then be quarantined for two weeks. And like, and then, get to hug them and then have to leave. You know, I, I, had, I didn't have a whole plan. I just knew like at a sense level, I needed to be in my parents' arms mm. because they're still alive. And since the pandemic happened, I had so many people who had lost their parents or lost one of their parents or lost significant people in their elder world. And the sense of it, right? Mm. That was like, anything that we do, even if in the moment, we're not able to fully recognize it, the way that memory works, I, you know, now I'm like, oh, I will remember sitting on the couch watching Jeopardy with them. Yeah. And I will remember, you know, the, getting that birthday celebration that we had together. I will remember those things. And at a sense level, I needed those things. And so I start to pay attention to the world in that way. What are the sensations of this moment, of this day? I'm having an incredible week right now. And I'm like, what are the sensations of this incredible week? Like, getting off the phone with Angela Davis, you know, the the event with her, I I was on no drugs, I had no drinks, I had nothing else. And I felt every cell in my body felt alive, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, I just feel clicked into where I'm supposed to be in time and space. I feel so interconnected to all things. And it's just that I'm like, because I bring my awareness to this moment, I'm not going to rush to the next one, and it is a mindfulness practice, bodyfulness practice, lifefulness practice, right? Is I I don't know what the future holds and I don't know everything that has already happened. You know, I know the snippets of it, the little bits that have been written down by those who had the privilege to write at that time. But I do know that the present moment connects me to all
1: of it.
2: Mm. Yes.
1: beautiful ones. I am pausing this episode quickly to let you know about a couple of ways that you can work with me. I am a liberation doula, which means that my work surrounds around helping folks to birth their most joyful, liberated lives. What does it look like to be free? What does it look like to practice freedom daily and what does it look like to orient yourself towards personal and collective liberation. So in order to support people in their liberation, I have two ways to work with the 101. The first is through liberation coaching, which is one-off coaching. You can go onto my website and sign up for a a session. It's one hour where we can talk about anything that is pressing in your life or that is uh, coming up for you, questions that you want to answer or something that you want to workshop. It's a great opportunity for just kind of like anything that's coming up and you would like to talk with me about it or workshop it with me, it's a great way to do that. The other option is through the Journey Intensive Coaching Program, which is a three to 12 month coaching intensive where I walk you through my framework for liberation. This framework is something I've been working on for many, many years. And I say often is an extension of the work that my ancestors have worked on for centuries. I have boiled it down to a three-part framework, which is alignment, embodiment, and connection. First, we will walk through what is your dream for your freedom? What is the dream for your life? If you could have a full imagination about what is possible, Um, let's play and be in that space. And then we evaluate your values, see what is working for you, what isn't working for you. And then are you living in alignment to those values? And then we work through what it looks like to be an embodiment of those values, an embodiment of your intuition. And then we move into the connection piece, which is all about anti-oppressions and the ways that we live out the systems of oppressions daily through the ways that we talk, the ways that we walk, the choices that we make, and the things that we support. And how do we undo that? How do we remove those things from our embodied program? Um, and that's what we work through with the coaching intensive, which is a really beautiful opportunity to dig deep into your liberation and to create frameworks and systems for that. So, if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can do that through the link in the show notes or go to let'sgetnaked. slash coaching. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I had, ooh, and for me, I got into yoga because Mm. of that very experience. I had never in my life experienced the present moment like I did when I was in a very hot, sweaty, intense practice, asana practice. I accessed something in myself that was so still that I, I became a junkie to it. Yes,
0: and <laughs> You're like, I need to get still, right, <laughs> yes, I understand,
1: and I wonder, like, my dream, or what, I constantly, I'm a Capricorn, and have Capricorn, <sighs> five different planets, so
0: I'm, wow, yes. <laughs> that's amazing, my sister has Sag in five different planets, so mm. it's rare, though, to have that, so a stellium, is that called,
1: I actually don't know, I yeah, don't know. I yeah. think it is, but it's, it that Capricorn energy runs so deep because anytime yeah. I hit a problem, I'm like, okay, let's fix it. Like let's, yeah. <laughs> like a moment, like what are the steps that is, is needed? And so hmm. being in like a justice space, being in a liberation space, I'm constantly thinking like, what are the solutions? And um, I had the privilege of learning how to teach yoga, for an organization that provided yoga to people of color mainly for free. Mm. And that experience for me, I was like, how can I share this presence, this like level of junkiness? Like I need to experience this yeah. with the world. And I'm constantly that's right interested in that.
0: Yeah, constantly. I mean, and that's another piece you know, that feels like another fundamental piece of pleasure activism is that it's not enough to experience it just by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the places where we really combat white supremacy and that individuation of capitalism is, uh, you know, oh, I'll go off by myself. And, you know, I I alone will have the yoga experience and then I'll just spend my time alone. <laughs> right. um, and I think one of the things that black feminism brings to the table is, It actually we all need to be able to access it and so for pleasure activism i was like i'm not a sex expert i don't know all these things but i know enough now that i want to offer up like here's some keys right Mm -hmm. these keys will unlock different doors and then you will go through those doors and who knows what happens like i have um a pair of friends who um they read pleasure activism and they started moving down this path of kink in their own lives and have really opened up some doors that I didn't even get to. Like I, I had lined up people around BDSM and kink that I wanted to talk to. And those interviews didn't end up happening at, you know, in time to get into the book. So I've been like, ah, like BDSM has so much to teach us and it's just Absolutely. not in the book and I want it there. So we just had a conversation about creating a book, another book that's just wow. looking at Emergent Strategy and Kink. And it made me so excited, but I'm like, I, I can't write this book y'all are going to write the book because you've actually gone through those doors and explored that territory in a way that I haven't yet. And you're going to teach me and I can Mm -hmm. uplift that teaching. Right. But, and, and for both of them as black women, they were like, we want everyone to have access to all of this, to know what it feels like to have this much agency over who touches you and how they touch you and what the power dynamics are and everything else. They were like, everyone needs to have all of this. Yeah. So to me, that piece around, once you find it, how do I share it?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important question and inquiry to be in. I think it's a practice to be in is how do I name my teachers and become a teacher? <laughs> yes.
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I wanna pivot slightly, cause I'm interested, um, I picked up your newest book, um, yesterday. And Thank you. Of course, of course. And, um, I was starting to read it and I didn't finish, obviously didn't finish it all, but, um, it's funny because I was reading the intro and I was like, God, this is all of what I've been thinking about for the last few months. Um, oh, wow. specifically when it came to needing to hold conflict Yep. Um, and that being a critical skill for the movement and individual liberation. Yeah. Um, I took, I took my first hunting. Um, I went on my first hunting experience this past month and it taught me literally like, what does it look like? The people that I was hunting with were all white Mainers who you wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. us to be in the room together. Yeah. That experience of staying with them for two days and never having met them in person. And this whole experience of learning like, in order to get to a space of liberation and love, we have to be able to hold conflict. We have to have discourse around that. We Mm -hmm. have to have like um, emotional um, regulation Yes. and like understanding around that yes I'm interested to know your thoughts on like since I didn't get to finish the book and I will but like
0: <laughs> wanna... You're like spoilers right. um yeah I mean you know I, I have been doing some kind of facilitation and mediation movement for my whole adult life which is now like 22 23 24 years something and it's um, the thing that I, for a long time, the thing that I felt like I was able to do was kind of to slip people past the conflict. Right. Mm -hmm. And be like, okay, we'll, we'll still get somewhere and it'll still be good. And you'll feel happy. And people are like, yeah, we love you, Adrian. And I was like, yes, but you didn't actually deal with the thing you need to deal with. And we all know, you know, either you know it now, or you're going to know it pretty quickly. So, one of the things that I feel like I spent particularly the last decade in scholarship around was how do we do generative conflict mm. and looking for models, looking for practices, and finding little pieces of it in different places. Like in the somatic world, there's a lot around how do we stay in our bodies and stay present with another with whom we feel deep difference, and how do we feel for if there's a boundary needed, how do we feel if it's a quit? You know, if we need to really quit the relationship, how do we feel what's possible in a reconnection? Um, and then I also felt like in my movement work and black liberation work, this kept coming up. And in Tanya Lee offered the model of principle struggle to myself um, and several black movement leaders at a very crucial moment in 2017. That was like, I think a huge reason why the movement for Black Lives is where it is right now is because there was this introduction and deepening into the the skill of principled struggle and -hmm. of being able to figure out what matters right now, where do we need to generate around the conflict right now? But the reason the book came along was because, because I've already got another book coming out in the spring that's all about facilitation and mediation. But this book felt necessary in this moment because we... I came back from sabbatical and I looked around and I, I had started noticing this before, but it felt so heightened. Uh, the pattern of self-destruction, and mm. it really felt like, are we have we lost our hope that liberation is possible and that transformative justice is possible and that abolition is possible because we're behaving as if a lot of people are disposable. Every day, more and more people are disposable because we know the harm that they have caused. And I say that very particularly, like I think that everyone causes harm. And so then it's, it becomes a matter of like, whose harm are we made aware of? And yeah. once you become aware of people's harm, what do you do then? Um, and what I, w- I have been getting worried about is how often, um, how often I would get a message. I was like, this person caused harm, You unfollow them. This person caused harm. Um, can you stage an intervention on this person this person caused harm and we want to do uh, an entire community accountability process around it that they haven't agreed to this person caused harm and such and such and I was like hold on Um, some of those sound like the right responses and uh, but it also sounds like a lot a lot a lot a lot of different things are getting collapsed into the same bucket of response and so the book is my attempt to of to pull everything out of the bucket and be like, these are all the different moving parts. Our cynicism is at play. And how do we reactivate the part of us that wants to live enough to move into those generative conflict places and to figure out what are the boundaries we need to have? How do we navigate a post-COINTELPRO movement landscape? Um, because it definitely doesn't include <laughs> um, making everyone else available for the state to pick us off right? Mm-hmm. And then calling that justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, it's very hard work to take responsibility for each other. It's very, very hard work. And I think one of the mistakes I made, because initially it was an essay that I posted on my blog. And then the feedback to the essay really taught me a lot about what I had left out, what I had misspoken. And one of the pieces in it is like, for people who have survived abuse or are surviving abuse or have survived assault, that it's not their responsibility to make sure that the person who harmed them or is trying to still harm them stops harming gets healing like that's right. And I think that that's often what the assumption is like, oh, you're going to have to totally forgive and you're going to have to show up in circle with this person everything and I'm like, no not necessarily right if that's not where you are that's not where your heart is um if the if the trauma is still happening is still fresh like i mean like hell no so the thing i'm interested in is what are the satisfying consequences
2: mm. for
0: what has happened and what would satisfy us in terms of the boundaries that are needed And i think a lot of times we end up doing a whole cancel campaign when actually what we needed was boundaries that were well held in community and which means as not just as individuals, we had to get better at asking, but as a community, we have to get better at being like, okay, we all collectively have a sense of how to hold boundaries. And we don't have a lot of models of that yet. There are some, there are some, but the book is basically an invitation to be in practice of abolition at that level, mm. daily interpersonal inside of movement.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I think in a lot of ways, what I'm seeing is more of a push towards the abolishment of cancel culture in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing yeah. more people speaking to it and um, kind of holding that space, but I'm excited about having tools to, to like do something with it. Like, yes. you know, cause the harm is still there. The pain is still there.
0: yeah,
1: And the do- desire for nuanced humanity is still there.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, I am a practical person, practical magician. And I really feel if cancel culture worked, I think I would feel differently about it. Right? Like if it was like, oh, yeah, we canceled this person. And like, they went away, they didn't cause any more harm. And the person who survived them felt totally safe. And it was all good. Um, But that's not what I have seen happen. You know what i've seen happen is the cancellation oper- operates as a temporary moment of you know having some pleasurable vengeance having you know getting to say i'm better we are better than this person this person is a harm-doer we are not um and then they move to a different location and continue causing harm or they move out of control um and So I am interested in like, what is satisfying? How do we get satisfied in terms of what justice can look like? And I love the ideas of transformative justice because it's really like, well, what does it look like to go to the root of harm? What does it look like to actually find the source? And again, that's not everyone's work. Um, As someone who is a survivor myself, I I don't think my job is to go to the root of my abuser's harm and make sure that they they all get what they need Right. It's instead to recognize that's what's needed. And I wish them well in pursuing that health, pursuing that path. And what I need to break my own cycles is really important. And I need to be held in that.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful.
1: Um, let's do a quick one-on-one of emergent strategy.
0: Mm, okay. Yay. Okay all right so emergent strategy is my favorite thing um (laughs) emergent strategy 101 of emergent strategies is about getting a right relationship with change
1: Mm.
0: right it's really about getting a right relationship with change and uh, change is a constant and um i was reading science fiction i was reading science i was looking at climate catastrophe patterns and really um, looking at how in movement, we kept trying to come up with these very rigid concepts of how the future was gonna unfold that would quickly become irrelevant. Um, They were not giving ourselves the tools with which we could move in and out of conditions and relationships in a way that really worked. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of looking at ants and bees and trying to understand What are the patterns by which everything else in nature relates to change? And how do we get in right relationship with it when we've been trained out of it? We've been trained to really think we can control things, we can stop change from happening. And I don't think we can, right? I don't think we can. I think one of the things Octavia Butler, the prophet goddess of emergent strategy, (laughs) One of the things that she teaches us is that god is change. like the way that the divine energy of the world moves is by constant change and that rather than trying to stop or control change what we want to be doing is figuring out how do we shape it how do we harness the relationship humble ourselves to what is possible and what is not possible and then shape what we can actually touch and i love that you know like uh I hate changes that I did not come up with, right? <laughs> so I love this tool cause I'm like, oh, I just, I am not in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not in charge of everything. I can shape some changes, which ones can I actually harness and shape? And it's something about, you know, we think of humbling in two ways, like humbling, like takes you down a notch from your ego. But I also find humbling to be a great relief. Like, oh, it's humbling to really sit with the the scale of the cosmos and the scale of the universe and the scale of the planet, the scale of all the different experiments of society and the scale of all the work that has existed since humans came into existence to like sit with all of that and be like, Oh yeah, like what I can do is actually quite small. Mm. And that's actually the gift. So how do I do the small very well? Something I've been really sitting with, especially through this pandemic is, how do I make community the scale that I can actually touch and be in relationship with and let my emergent strategy happen at the scale of relationships, you know, that I can, that I'm like, there's, I'm, I'm less and less interested in like abstract masses of people. And like, how are we going to get all, you know, this country? I'm like, there's 74 million people who, um, want to support someone who is openly racist and incoherent. Um, I can't be worried about them. <laughs> like I'm not, that's not my liberation work is not like trying to get all those millions. I am like, how do I get a hundred people in the world to really tune into their own um, power and their own capacity to shape change, their own capacity for liberation? How do I really tune in and and be present in those relationships? That's a lot, right? It's actually a lot, you know, the pandemic showed me, I'm like, I have a, a limit of how much friendship I can do. And it's amazing. I have an abundance of time for the, friends, the friendships that I have, but there's a limit to how much I can do. And if I live inside of that limit, I am a great friend. Yes, right? yeah. um, and I can move with the changes that we need to move through as a community. Um, and if I don't humble myself, then change becomes impossible because I've overbooked, overstacked, overfilled my life and I have overly ambitious ideas for what I will be able to pull off, I'll never be satisfied.
1: Yes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Such an, ooh, all of it's so anti-capitalist. It just keeps back to exactly (laughs) what we were talking about earlier. It's like realizing that we, because I think there's a piece of capitalism that's like mine everything for like, infinity yeah not recognizing that things are finite exactly and we see ourselves as that too we see our own energy our own passion our own desire as like infinitely able to hold everything at the same exact time at the same exact amount and capacity
0: yeah and like I don't know if you you know have ever read this there's some work by Aldous Huxley it talks about how what drugs do for us and how when we're babies, we don't have the filters. So we do see the interconnectedness of all things and feel the inner, feel all the emotion. You know, that's why someone might have a broken heart on aisle three of a plane and the baby on aisle 37 is crying, right? Mm. Like they feel everything and they feel the distress. They feel it all. And then slowly a part of our socialization, our natural socialization is like honing in on like what we can actually handle seeing and feeling. But one of the reasons people and myself included love to do mushrooms or acid or other things like that is it opens you back up at least briefly to be able to comprehend the huge interconnection. And it is overwhelming and we can't hold it all but it doesn't mean it's not also true. So at all times we are all deeply completely interconnected And at all times, there's a limit to how much we can hold in our comprehension and still move around and interact with each other. And I love writing that line. And to me, emergent strategy is a way of saying like, I I am connected to the ants. I'm connected to the bees. I'm connected to the wild dog in the courtyard. I'm connected to the children, the child that lives upstairs who wakes me up every morning with her thumping And like, I'm in, I'm interconnected. I'm in relationship with these people. Um, And change will happen for all of us. And all of us live inside of oppressive systems like capitalism. And what can we do inside of our lifetimes to harness and shape the change away from that? A lot can be done in the work of parenting and teaching. Uh Uh Right? Because it's like, how do you shape what people believe who will be the next generations? And then a lot can be done through that self-examination and finding what are the new practices to be in. And in emergent strategy, you know some of the core practices are small as all, really looking at what are all the small things that you do and what do you do over and over again? What are you iterating? Because mm-hmm. change happens through nonlinear accumulation of behaviors, much more than a linear five-year plan. So what is it you practice and do every day, however small, that's what you become. Right, yeah, yeah, so a lot of it is really getting people to tune into you are crafting, you are creating what's possible for your life with the choices you're making at a small scale in community. What are you going to choose?
1: <laughs> yeah, so.
0: mm-hmm.
1: I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap.
0: Yes, and please.
1: That's your sci fi Octavia Butler Afrofuturist brain. Yay, I. Octavia Butler's one black feminist that I hadn't read any of her work.
0: Wow. Any. I'm and jealous. I always feel so jealous when people are gonna get to begin all of her work.
1: <laughs> I'm like, oh,
0: new. Yes.
1: I was, I, and I just started um, Parable of the Sower. Great. And it's funny, because as you've been talking, I've been picking up little things that you've said that I imagine may have come from your study of Octavia. But I'm interested to know, like, what's the futurist in you experiencing, feeling these days, thinking, Mm -hmm. dreaming about?
0: (sighs) I think the biggest thing that I'm holding right now is a a sense of post-nationalism mm. that I don't feel um, committed to these borders, and I don't feel committed to the nation-state in its current form. Um, so I participate in the practices of this nation. You know, I just participate in the election and. I'm still like, we all need to make sure that Georgia does this. And, you know, I'm attributing to the Georgia Senate races and things like that. But it's this split consciousness of there's also part of me that's like, and all of that for me is just reducing the harm and the immediate to the most vulnerable while we carve out inside of this something next. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in the scale of the tribal, right? Um, like how many people can you be in relationship with right now i feel like there's um, possibilities of decentralized tribalization where because of technology you can have tribe that is spread across multiple places but that shares deep value and practice and love for each other and so i'm very interested in that at a scale level um, and i think at least for me the pandemic has given me a chance to be in some of those practices so like how do I feel safe? And how do I drop in and be home where I am? And also how do I deepen the connections I have with people in other places? So my inner circle feels so much closer than they ever have at any other point in my life, because we very intentionally were like, in order to get through this pandemic, we need a weekly phone call. (laughs) You know, like my family, we are now talking to each other once a week. We never did that. Right? Right. And like, since I left home for college, we've never been in this regular familial contact. And the same with my closest circles of friends. It's like I have multiple weekly calls and I prioritize them. That's one of the most important parts of my week is that deep, deep time to show myself and and to see the people that I love, to know what they care about, how their bodies are, how their mental state is. I am also redistributing my resources constantly. Like, uh, you know, there's people like right now, (laughs) you know, I was on sabbatical for half the year. I wasn't having to spend a ton of money and I don't have a ton of money, um, but I have a little more than some of my friends who like lost their jobs or lost steady home space or other challenges. So being able to redistribute resources in this moment has felt like part of my futuring, And that there's a beautiful new book that's come out on mutual aid by Dean Spade that really looks at, at what we're learning about a future centered in care, a future mm-hmm. centered in meeting each other's needs, um, not in a transactional way, but in a relational way. And I think that's what the future actually holds for us. Um, who wants it that way? I think there are also people who are very interested in in a future of war. And fighting and so one of the things I think about a lot is like for those of us who are not interested in that future how do we opt out (laughs) um which you know Octavia's answer was to go to space and we'll see what ours is
1: yeah Mm -hmm. I love that so much well before I ask my last question
0: um
1: where can people find you find your incredible work oh yeah
0: um, AK Press is the, the spot where all my books are, um, all my books that are still in print. So Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, We Will Not Cancel Us, Octavius Brood. Um, and I just got to um, put forth the work of a good friend of mine, Alexis Pauline Gumbs, who is a genius uh, called Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons for Marine Mammals. So all of that is at AK Press. And i Definitely prefer that people buy directly from them um, or from a local community bookstore like Source Books in Detroit. It, they're my like home bookstore, Karis Books in Atlanta, there's Red Emma's in Baltimore. Um, uh, and then otherwise, you know, I have a website, Um, and I'm on Instagram. Like Instagram is kind of my home base in the socials. So I love to post um, post things that I think will increase the sense of joy and solution in the world. So I'm very intentional with what I do and what I offer in that space. and yeah, those are those are my places. Amazing. And my podcast. Oh
1: yes. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Um, you know, you just started reading Octavia's Parables. Um, so I'm doing a podcast on the parables where we go chapter by chapter, deep diving okay. in. and it's really a companion. It's like, understanding the analysis of those books for people we want as many people as possible to be reading them right now um and then i also that's with toshi regan who created the octavia butler's parable of the sower opera which is incredible and then my sister and i do a podcast called how to survive the end of the world um which we're i think five years into now learning sharing everything we know about relational survival
1: together i love it hmm So my last question is, um, what is lighting you up these days?
0: Hmm. Hmm. I'm living inside of my own wildest dreams these days. Like Hmm. I spend most of my life writing or in conversation with people that I really respect and admire and I worked really hard and I dreamed really hard to get here. So I regularly wake up and I'm like, what does my day look like? And I look at it and I'm like, fuck yes, <laughs> this is a day that I really wanna live. And, um, and it lights me up, especially knowing what the conditions are at this time, that these are daunting conditions. And each of my days I feel grief And I set aside aside time to be with my ancestor altar. I set aside time to add to my ancestor altar the the deaths of those that I love and the deaths of those that I've never met before. Um, So I'm also lit up by how much emotion I can feel and what a wide range of emotion feels available in a given day. Um, But the conditions of the world have not stopped me from being in right relationship with my destiny and that feels that feels good.
1: Ah, oh, so good. So good. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time out of your day to chat with me and
0: thank I'm you. like through the moon.
1: So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited. These were great questions. This is a beautiful format and I look forward to hearing and seeing it out in the world. Absolutely.
1: So friends, What did you think? (laughs) Oh, I'm so grateful. So, so grateful to have had that conversation and so grateful to be able to share it with you. I really hope that this conversation helps you. Find some insight on the ways that you wish to shape change in your own life and in this world because we all so desperately need each of us shaping change in radical and pleasurable and satisfying ways. So that's it for this week. That is it. Please continue to share the podcast to leave your thoughts and your feelings and to dm me then i love it i love it i love it and uh i'm so grateful for you have an incredible week bye